something goofy. It is the cold medicine that I might be overdosing on right now so I can be up here and, and talk to you tonight. <coughs> but uh, we're looking here at Matthew chapter 6. Let's all stand together. Continu- continuing this uh, series, I know this is what God has for us right now on prayer. And uh, last week we spent some time uh, on the thought of a church that prays. I'm, I'm thankful for that evidence we found of what happened there in the book of Acts and that church and all that God did through them. And uh, I hope that I, that encouraged you. And I hope that uh, since last week there, you have been praying as you should. And not only praying just your normal prayers each and every day, but that you're praying for our church. You're praying for uh, God to use you in this church. And uh, tonight is uh, a very simple, practical message, but how do we pray? How do we pray? And we have the instruction from the Lord here in Matthew chapter 6. We'll start reading in verse 5. It says, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, Enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut the door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner therefore pray ye. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we love you, God. We thank you, Lord, for what we find here in your word. I pray, God, that you'd use it. God, I pray it be me as I preach, God. I pray that you just, uh, Lord, open our hearts and minds. Lord, as we evaluate our prayer life, we've got to pray that we make application where necessary tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A preacher once said, prayer has always been a primary mark of the saints of God in every generation of the church. George Whitfield was a powerful preacher of God, one that God used in the Great Awakening, and he went to bed every night at 10 p.m. and and woke up every morning at 4 in order to pray. Uh, John Wesley, another one of those men, he spent two hours daily in prayer, and and he commonly said this, God does nothing but an answer to prayer. William Temple, he's another man that spoke of uh, the the need to pray, and he he replied to his critics, who regarded answered prayer as no more than coincidences, he said this, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. (laughs) The request that we find here, Lord, teach us to pray, is probably our most needed prayer. And of all the privileges that we have as Christians, as children of God, possibly the greatest of those privileges that we have is the privilege of prayer. And, you know, as we're doing this series, you know, how often do we truly think about how amazing it is that the God that created this universe, the God that spoke this world into existence, the God that has given us everything that we have is the God that, a God that hears us and desires us to speak to him. And not on a certain schedule, not when he's available, not when he wants to hear, 
But at any moment of any day, we can go to our God in prayer. And that's a wonderful thing. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, to be able to speak to the God who created and controls the universe and to know that he has promised to hear us and answer us, what a blessing that is. And prayer is not just, this is something we know, but prayer is not just us sending words into thin air. It's not just us saying something that we've heard other people say. It's not just us doing something as, as a tradition that we've always done before we eat or before we go on a trip or before we go into a trial. But real praying is used by God to accomplish, it, to accomplish real purpose. And it's a privilege. And we need to think of it that way. And we need to be thankful for the gift of prayer. But just because we have the privilege of prayer, just because we know that prayer is available, doesn't mean we always take advantage of it, does it? As Christians, we know we can pray. We pray. We know we have access to God. We know the Bible verse is there. But just because we know it, and just because it's available, doesn't mean we do it as we should. And then there's so many Christians living, walking this earth today that have no idea how to talk to God. There might be a church member in here tonight that really doesn't know how to talk to God. And, you know, for thousands of years, men and women have been communing with God in prayer, and many have prayed properly, and they've seen God move. They've seen God step into their life in a powerful way and seen God answer prayer. And others have prayed with wrong motives. Others have prayed and with no idea how to commune with God or and have received nothing in answer to those requests. And in our text tonight, Jesus is sharing some of those problems that we still deal with today. You know, and Jesus didn't waste any time. Just like we talked about John the Baptist on Sunday, uh, calling out those, those vipers. Jesus is coming out here and calling these men hypocrites. Speaking of the hypocr hypocritical praying that goes on. And he's telling them that the prayer of those hypocrites amounts to nothing. It may sound good, it may uh, be, have a lot of fancy words and be very eloquent. The inflection may all be there, but he's calling them hypocrites and saying that prayer will not be effective. And then I, I love that he not only told us what not to do, and to stop doing that hypocritical praying, and to stop bringing attention to ourselves through, through, through prayer, but then he clearly laid out what you need to do to pray correctly. And, and as we look at this text tonight, we see instructions regarding prayer and First of all, in public prayer, and we see the Jewish nation was a blessed and a privileged people. God had specifically chosen them to be his people. He gave them the law. He promised to one day send them the Messiah and then, and then to give them access to him. And they, of all people, should have known how to talk to God. And I, and I believe they, they did at one point, but over the years, many errors had worked their way into Jewish worship and prayer. And, I, and I, could, I could probably say many of us in here tonight have had a point in your life where your prayer life was what it needed to be. And when you truly, when you went to God, you went to him seeking something from him. And you went to God, you, you went to him just with a desire for his power to work in your behalf and for a desire and a desire for him to just, his spirit to, to fill you and to comfort you and bring you peace. And you've sensed those moments with God, but quite possibly there might be a Christian sitting in the pew tonight that takes it for granted and that has gotten into some certain habits or 
somewhat memorized prayers that we pray just because that's what we do every day. And they're not effective. You know, Jesus is speaking about these, these Jews as in the hypocritical prayers they were praying, and he pointed out some problems. First of all, that their prayer had become nothing more than a ritual. The Jew prayed, and they prayed often. They, they prayed many times a day, but the prayers were scripted. They either quoted them from memory or they would read them. And with that being the way that it went, a Jew could pray and not even think about what he was saying. Anybody like that? <laughs> I, I, I can think of many times where I've, I've been in prayer for a minute or two and I've said all the phrases I always say and then I realize yeah, I, I, I was thinking about something else the whole time. Another thing that's pointed out, predetermined prayers were made for every aspect of life. This also led to prayer being something that could be recited from the head and not being lifted up from the spirit. Prayer was limited to <coughs> preset times and preset occasions. And instead of praying when they felt led to pray, or praying when they needed to speak with God or, or, when, or when a need arose, they prayed at when the schedule said it was time to pray. And I want to tell you tonight, there's nothing wrong with praying at a predetermined time. I hope that as soon as we can or we wake, when we wake up, we're praying. I hope at every meal you are praying and, and thanking God for how, what he's provided and, and whatever else you need to pray for at that moment. There's nothing wrong with praying at a predetermined time, but we, the Bible also tells us we need to remain in an attitude of prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says pray without what? Ceasing. Then we look at this Jewish culture and there's a lot of praying, a lot of uh, reciting of prayers and reading of prayers and then there were those really long, eloquent prayers. And those prayers were extra special to the Jews at this time. They were very highly regarded. They were respected if you were one of those people that could pray those. And the Jews believed that the longer and more elaborate the prayer, the more likely it was to be heard of God. And there's nothing wrong with a long prayer time. There's nothing wrong with hours and prayer spent with God and as long as the Spirit is in it. But when a person prays a long prayer to impress other people, which is what the Jews were doing, they've crossed a line to hypocrisy. And many of these prayers were made up of meaningless repetition. You know, the Jews were notorious for repeating phrases and, and adding adjectives to the name of God, thinking they would be heard by him just because they kept saying these things over and over again. But what they, were, what they got that from was a pagan practice. And sadly, that's found in many Christian circles today. I think you could, you probably wouldn't have to drive too far, and you could go to some churches maybe tonight or on Sunday, and you could hear prayers just like that. People thinking they are reaching God when it has really become a prayer of hypocrisy and one that does not please God. And they would pray these long prayers and have this meaningless repetition with a desire to be seen and heard of others. And that's the worst offense of all in prayer. When we pray for others to hear how eloquent it is or to think, wow, that person is a, is a prayer warrior, that prayer stops being about communion with an individual in God and became an attempt to impress somebody. It's no longer about God, no longer to God, but for somebody else. 
This is the attitude that Jesus was dealing with in these verses. And there's a warning of wrong motives here. He's telling us that prayer is not about being seen or heard by anybody else. But prayer is a time of personal communion with God. Many have read these verses and they've concluded that by what he says here, public prayer is off limits. But that is not what the Bible says either. Jesus is not forbidding public prayers here, but he is telling men to to beware of who their audience is. I want to tell you tonight, with with the way that we're doing prayer time now on a Wednesday night, it's not so the person you're praying with can hear how good of a prayer you are. It is for us to together grow together in the Lord and, and, and pray for each other, pray on behalf of other people, pray for God to work in this church. And, and great fellowship is done through that prayer. But I, w- I want to encourage you as we pray these prayers, don't, don't worry about what the person next to you is thinking as you're praying. Commune with God. Commune with God. And if that other person with you is truly communing with God, they're not going to judge you based on how your prayer is. You know, if anybody is praying in public to be seen or heard by anybody else, then they have totally missed the point of prayer. Prayer is about man entering into the presence of God to have communion with him and nothing else. You know, these people Jesus called hypocrites, they were guilty of standing in public places and such as synagogues or street corners and praying loud, long prayers. So everybody that walked by would say, that is a spiritual person. Their desire was to impress other people with their religion. And Jesus condemns this because it drew attention to a man and not to God. It glorifies the flesh and not the Father. And that needs to be a principle in every prayer that we pray, whether private or public. It's not about us. It's not about anyone else. It's about pleasing God and praying the way he's, he's, he's instructed us to pray and praying in a way that's going to reach him. So he speaks of the public prayer, but then he goes on in verse 6. And describes private prayer. So he told them how the hypocrites prayed. And then he goes on to tell them how they should pray. So why the warning and guidelines for prayer? Because even in an activity such as prayer, even in a a very spiritual activity such as prayer, there is danger that the flesh gets involved. Or that it will be led astray. We have examples of that, and we have examples of that in the life of Jesus. There's, there's two, two of Satan's strongest attacks against Jesus came during times of intimate communion with the Father. We can look at the temptation in, in, the, in the desert, Matthew chapter 4, then we can look at in Luke 22, shortly before Jesus went to the cross. Jesus was attacked by the devil at those moments. And if Jesus can be attacked in a season of prayer, do you think we can? Yeah. Satan will try to do anything he can to hinder your prayer life. And he will try to do anything he can to get your flesh involved if he can. So one thing we need to make sure in our prayer life is that we make private prayer a priority. He tells us there, when thou prayest. Not if you pray, but when you pray. There's an expectation that Jesus had for the people he was instructing at this moment that they were going to be people that prayed and people that had a time of private prayer. And it's, ex- it's expected that God's people pray. We are commanded to pray. The Bible tells us in Luke 18, verse 1, 1 Timothy chapter 2, you can look those up. 
But since we are told to pray and since we've been instructed to pray, we should probably make prayer a priority in our life. And if prayer is not a priority in our life, most likely we will not be praying as we should. If, if you do not pray every day right now as a Christian, you are not doing uh, what God intends for you to do. If you have not made prayer a priority in your daily life, if we are going on our own strength in our, during our days, we are not living as God would have us to live. And there's going to be, and we may be okay for a little bit, but there's going to be times of struggle. There's going to be a moment where you, you needed God's extra, extra strength in your life. You needed his power. You needed just an, a better awareness of him for that day, that time of prayer with him. Where, and without it, without that awareness, we will fall. Communion with God should be a priority of every Christian. We will never grow in the Lord beyond the depth of our prayer life. Private prayer needs to be a priority. Private prayer needs to be an intimate time with God. You know, in contrast to the hypocrites who like to pray in public places and they wanted everyone to hear how good they were, Jesus tells his people to go to a private place to pray. Doesn't tell us how there's we hear the term of, of a of a closet a place that you can go by yourself to have that communion with God what you need to make sure you're doing is having an intimate time just you and God nobody else around so you can truly pray to him so you can truly uh, speak from the heart to God and there are things that need to be said in prayer that don't need to be said within an earshot of other people you know, when we pray in private, we can have liberty to declare our hearts to God and, and to tell Him whatever it is that's on our heart, whatever, whatever it is that's on our mind, whatever need that we have in our life, and we can be honest with God when it's just us and God. And when it's just us and God, we can truly humble ourselves before Him as He desires us to do so. We can be who we really are because there's no one to impress, there's no one to uh, maybe push off because they hear who you are. It's our time with God. Do you keep a time with God like that? You know, when Jesus uses the phrase, pray to thy Father, which is in secret, he's not just referring to a secret place for you, a private place for you. He is referring to the very dwelling place of God. As Jesus, as Jesus said, pray to your Father, which is in secret, this was somewhat of a surprising thing for them to hear. Because at this moment, what they still relied on was the high priest that went on their behalf once a year to the, to the Holy of Holies. He could only enter there once a year, and he would enter with, had to enter with blood to atone for his sins and for the sins of the people. And Jesus is telling them when they enter into genuine prayer before the Lord that they are able to access that secret place. It literally takes you to the presence of God and brings God's presence near to you. Private prayer is intimate. Private prayer is powerful. We're told there, it says that thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. <coughs> you know, we pray to the Lord out of sincere desire to have communion with him. He's going to honor our faith. He's going to honor our humility. And he will answer in a way that demonstrates the fact that we have been with him. So if we refuse to show off in prayer, then we will show out in his answers to prayer. Jesus just tells us here, if you just get this, when prayer ceases to be about us and our being seen by other people, 
it becomes about him. And when it becomes about him, we can expect him to move in response to the prayer. So here's some conditions about personal prayer. You know, Jesus offers a few more things, a few more pointers for us so we can know how to properly pray to him as he goes on there in verse 7 and 8. He says, but when you pray, use not vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. First thing is, don't be repetitious. Pagans, we already mentioned this, pagans as well as the Jews believed they could be heard by the Lord if they repeated their prayers or if they repeated the same phrases over and over. We can find an example of the worship of Baal being this very fashion. You can look at 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 26 to 29, see evidence of that. You can see the people of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, same exact thing with those people. They thought repetitious, repetitious prayers honored their God. But Jesus doesn't want us to engage in meaningless repetition. We need to remember it's not the repetition, not the length of our prayers that matter, not the eloquence of the prayers that matter. What matters is the condition of the attitude of the one doing the praying. And, and, and quickly, let's not confuse repetition with asking for the same request over and over. It's not wrong to ask for requests, to eat the same request over and over, it is wrong to enter into a mindless state where prayer becomes uh, just something we do, not something we're really thinking about. And if we go on in, in a prayer repetition, it's an insult to God because we no longer are, are speaking in communion with him. We are just repeating the same thing over and over. Second thing, remember your relationship with God. He reminds us there in verse 8 that he's our father. He knows what we need as our Father. You know, God knows what you need before you ask Him. He still wants us to ask Him. But God knows your heart. God knows what you need before you ask Him. And someone says, if God already knows what we need, then what's the point in praying? You know, God, prayer gives God the opportunity to hear His children express their love for Him, their dependence in Him, and their faith in Him. And it affords God, by hearing those things, to demonstrate his love for his children, his power for his children, his glory in, his, in their life, his provision for them. So remember your relationship with God as you pray and then acknowledge his power. You know, since he is God and since he is our Father, we can go to him in confidence and expect him to work. Do you believe God can do anything? We know that truth. We know that we have a God of the impossible. We, we have, we've seen his power. We see evidence of it. But do you truly believe that God can do anything? I, I saw this story as, and, um, from the church of, in London of Charles, Charles Spurgeon's that he pastored for many years. And there were five college students that were spending a, a Sunday in London and they went to hear the hear Spurgeon priest they arrived early and the students were greeted by this man that invited them in and and he said gentlemen let me let me show you around would you like to see the heating plant of this church because I could give you a tour and I could take you to the heating plant where the heating takes place and and it was July and they were never interested in and in seeing the heating plant but they wanted to be kind to this man that was letting them in and so they followed him in there and 
He took them down a stairway, and a door was quietly opened, and the guide whispers, this is our heating plant. And to their surprise, it wasn't a boiler, it wasn't a furnace, but they saw 700 people on a Sunday afternoon seeking God underneath the auditorium that was above them. And softly, that man closed the door, and then the, what they thought was the janitor introduced himself, and it was nobody other than Charles Spurgeon. That's people that believe the power of God was necessary. Do you believe God's power is needed in your life? And do you believe that he can accomplish something in your life and in this church? And after Jesus told them what not to do, I'm thankful he gave them a guide for every prayer and how it should go. You know, D.L. Moody said, I'd rather be able to pray than be a great preacher. Jesus Christ never taught his disciples how to preach, but only how to pray. And the next part of this text that we're going to look at is one I believe many of us can probably quote tonight. And it's given the title of the Lord's Prayer, and it's probably one of the most familiar, memorized, and most quoted portions of Scripture in all of the Bible. But it's so often wrongly used. This, this text that we find here, we're not just supposed to Mindless, mindlessly repeat it from memory. But he gave it to us, not to quote it, but to use it as a framework on how we can build a true prayer that is pleasing to God. One that is heard, one that is answered, one that glorifies him. So he gave us this pattern for prayer. And the first thing we need to recognize in this prayer that is given when he says, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Our prayers should be to a person, and that person is none other than our Father in heaven, our God. He's our Father. That implies a relationship. So this prayer is not going to do anything for an individual that is not a child of God. But Jesus told us in John chapter 14, verse 13, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The prayer is to God, not to anybody else. Then he says, our Father in heaven. That's reminding us of the position that God has. Our God whose place is in heaven, our God who is sovereign, our God who is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's on heaven's throne. He's worthy of our faith. He's worthy of our prayer. He is an able God who is in control. And we need to remember that. Faithlessness has no place, not just in the life of a Christian, but especially, and in particular, our prayer life. The Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please him. If we want to have prayers that please God, our prayers need to be prayers of faith. (coughs) And he's not just our father. He's not just our father in heaven. He's our father who is holy. And we need to, as we approach God in prayer, we don't need to approach him flippantly, do we? We don't need to pray lighthearted. We don't need to pray to try to be funny. We need to pray knowing that as we're praying, we are speaking to the holy God that he is. And as he says, hallowed is thy name, it reminds us of his holiness. And he must be approached in fear 
in reverence. And I'm reminded of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he, was, when he was there speaking to God. He said, woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And as we approach God, we need to approach him with that same mindset, that same heart. Woe is me. He wants to hear our prayers. And we can be thankful for that. But we can approach him not with, not with certain expectations, not with a cocky spirit, but with a true understanding of who we are and who he is. Job, as God was speaking to him, he says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. He was unworthy to even speak to God. To truly hallow his name means that we see him as Lord over all. And as we pray, if we truly acknowledge our Father in heaven as holy, as Lord over all, we will lift him up, and as he gets higher, we get lower, don't we? So that's how we should address him. That's how we should approach him. But then, then he tells us what he, des- what he desires and what we should desire in our prayers through him. What must be in our minds as we approach God? First one is thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. What does that mean? I believe there's three parts to that. The first thing is there's a request for Jesus to return to earth. The word kingdom does not refer to a geographical location, but to dominion and sovereignty. And if we pray the term thy kingdom come, we are praying for Christ's rule upon the earth. And this coming kingdom points ahead to a time when Jesus is going to rule and he's going to reign in perfect glory and peace and righteousness. What a day that will be. But it's not just that request, it's also a personal request. Praying for the kingdom of God to be realized in our own life. And when we pray this prayer, we are asking Jesus to have supreme rule over our life. And, and that's exactly what we should be desiring as we approach him. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, But seek ye first the what? Kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. So a goal not only in our daily living, but also in our prayer life is that we are seeking the kingdom of God. He needs to have a key to every room in your heart tonight. Every part of you needs to be surrendered to him. He needs to have absolute control of your life, but it's, and it's also an evangelistic request. So as we're yielded to God and he's ruling and reigning in our lives, we can play a part in bringing other people to him. Turn turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. That water did not help. (coughs) Excuse me. When we pray for the lost, we're praying for God's kingdom to expand in the earth. And we need to be praying evangelistically. We need to be praying for other people. We need to be praying for people to come to the Lord. We need to be praying for those that have gone astray to come back to God. We need to be praying for our missionaries. We need to pray for the unsaved all across our world to come to him. And we look here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I exhort therefore that first of all supplication, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for what? All men. For kings... And for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is what? Good 
and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Then what does it say? Who will have some? No, all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So as we pray that kingdom come, that means many different things, but we don't need to pray those specific words, but we do need to pray for God to work and for, for our hearts to be seeking his kingdom and for our, for our hearts to be seeking him to rule and reign over our life. Are we focused on that in prayer? And then he says, thy will be done, back to the text. This is related to the previous line, when God's kingdom is realized in the world, his will will be done in the world as it is in heaven. But this phrase is also telling us to place God's will above everything else in our lives. You know, it's, this, it's the prayer that was prayed in the will of God that receives the answer of God. What, what does he tell us in 1 John chapter 5? He says, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petition that we desired of him. But when, when you pray, what's more important? Your will, what you want, or what God wants? We've all been there. When we pray, what's more important? Us getting what we want or us getting what we know God wants? <clears throat> Think of Jesus three different times asking his father to remove the cup from him. But what did he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but what? Thine be done. We should pray that same thought with that same attitude each and every time we seek God or seek something from God. A surrendered mindset is key to answered prayers, I promise you. Our prayers should include requests. <coughs> We should pray about physical needs. There's no sin, there's no shame in asking God to meet physical needs. He's promised to supply all of them. He's told us in Philippians chapter 4 verse 19, For my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory. In Romans chapter 8 verse 31, he says, If God be for us, who can be against us? Then he says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Remember the question we asked last week? You guys like the story of the Xbox? How many things do you not have because you haven't asked him for it? What about wisdom in your life? What about his peace? You, you may not have those things tonight, and it's not because he doesn't want you to have them. The Bible tells us in the book of James, if any man lack wisdom, let him what? Ask of God, which giveth to all men liberally, and it braideth not, and it shall, not might, it shall be given him. Wisdom's there for us. But we might not have it in our decisions we're making right now because we just haven't asked him for it. He wants to help us with our physical needs. He wants to help us with our spiritual needs. More spiritual needs are mentioned here than physical ones. Why do you think that is? Because spiritual needs are greater by far than our physical needs. Notice some spiritual needs we need to pray about. First one is forgiveness for self. That word dead, it means something owed that must be paid back. They can be translated as sin or trespass, shortcomings, 
resentments, what we owe to God, anything we've done wrong, we all need to seek God for the forgiveness of personal sin as Christians when we've sinned. Because if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's for the Christian. When we spend more time in his presence, as we seek God, as we are humbled before him, we become more aware of his holiness and our sinfulness. I used it twice in the last week. If we regard iniquity in our heart, he won't hear us. If we have sin between us and him, we need to take it to him. We need to confess it before him. And not just forgiveness of, for self, but also forgiveness of others. An unforgiving spirit in the life of a Christian will totally destroy the prayer life of that Christian. You know, society exalts vengeance over forgiveness. But society is wrong. Unforgiveness will eat you alive spiritually. And it'll fill you with bitterness. It'll fill you with anger and rage. It'll fill you with anxiety, depression. Paul calls it a root of bitterness. And he says, it may be there. It may not be affecting anything at the moment. But at one point, it will be springing up and it will destroy. There's three great reasons why we should practice the forgiveness of others. And the first one is, we are never more like God than when we forgive. What kind of God do you serve? Our God is loving. Our God is gracious. Our God is kind. Our God is forgiving. And when we forgive others, we are exercising true godliness. In Ephesians 4, verse 32, Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving, and forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Think of everything that you have done in your life. Every horrible thing you've ever done was forgiven before you did it. If you think if God could forgive you of all those things, you could forgive that person that wronged you or hurt you. Second thing, it's, it's a reasonable thing that those who are forgiven, forgive. God has forgiven a massive debt. We can forgive our brother a much smaller one. So we need to pray for our spiritual needs and forgiveness for self. The second thing, forgiveness of others. And the third thing, to be delivered from temptation. To be delivered from temptation. This is a big one. Everyone is tempted. <clears throat> All of us face times of temptation, but we need to remember that God is never the one to do it. God doesn't do the tempting. The Bible tells us in James chapter 1, verse 13, that no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Okay? For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So if you are facing temptation in your life, it is not of God. The Bible says so. So if it's not of God, who's it of? And our prayer should be that God will direct our paths so that we can avoid the places of temptation. There's a, a joke I use all the time. This man went to the doctor and said, Doctor, I broke my arm in two places. What should I do? And the doctor said, Stay out of those places. That's very stupid, I know. But how often do we fall? How often do we get hurt? How often do we make a mistake? And we keep going back to the same place. Stay out of those places. 
Ask God to help you stay out of those places. So how do we, how do we have him leading our path? What does the Bible say in the book of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6? Trust, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways, what? Acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. So if you want him directing your path, acknowledge him in everything. Look to him in everything. Seek his help in everything that you do. What's another way? Walk in the Spirit. Acknowledge the Spirit in your life. Walk in it. Live by it. What does the Bible tell us when we walk in the Spirit? Ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So we, can, we need to pray for deliverance of temptation. And the last thing we can pray for personally is to be delivered from evil. This is a prayer for help in avoiding sin. That's literally what it is. It's a plea for God to change us, to hedge us, to keep us, to walk with us so we can be sheltered from the power of the devil. So that's how we seek help in our prayer. And the last thing we find in prayer is our prayer should include praise. He says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Not amen. We say amen here. <coughs> we can praise him first of all for his sovereignty he can be praised because he is sovereign he deserves to be glorified we can also, we can also praise him in our prayer for his power he has abilities beyond what we could ever imagine and he's demonstrated power in your life and you are looking you should be looking for him to demonstrate more power in your, life, in your life and on your behalf. And if we can praise him for his glory. He demands and he deserves all the glory in every situation of life. And he needs to be glorified in earth as he's already being glorified in heaven. You know, one day, if you are a Christian, all you'll want to do is praise him in heaven. Why, are we, why do so many Christians, why are so many Christians living in a way where they are waiting until they get there to do that? We can do it right now. It needs to be part of your prayer life. It needs to be part of your personal life. So as, you look at this Lord's, as we look at the Lord's Prayer, we look at the instruction he's given us. This, this guide can be defined in an activity uh, that's an acrostic acts. And if, and if you would like to be helped from this, write it down, A-C-T-S. It's acrostic. This is actually a method that I use in my personal prayer, a way that I pray. And that letter A in the word Acts stands for adoration. So as you begin your prayer, we are acknowledging who God is. We are adoring our God. And understanding that in that prayer, God needs to be worshipped. And we need to be looking, lifting him up in our prayer, acknowledging who he is. And as we begin that prayer, acknowledging who he is, we get to the letter C, acknowledging who we are, and we come to confession. The higher God gets, the lower we get, and we see ourselves as we truly are. Sometimes we already know what we need to confess, but other times some things will be revealed to you. Before we do anything else with God, before we go to him and ask him for anything, we need to make sure we are in good standing with him, so we need to confess those things to him. Any sin in your life, deal with it at that point. Letter T, thanksgiving. 
always possess a thankful heart before God. Not only acknowledge who he is and his power, not only, not only acknowledge his glory, not only, not only acknowledge who you are, but then thank him for the grace he's shown on your behalf. Thank you for what he's provided, even though he knows who you are. And that letter S stands for supplication. After we've done those first three things, there's room to bring those needs to him. There's the time for the request. So when all that selfishness leaves, when, when, when all our selfish desires are gone, once we've lifted him up, once we've confessed, once we've thanked him, then what we truly need and what is his will, we will ask for. There's a poem I want to share with you. It says, I got up early one morning and rushed right into the day. I had so much to accomplish that I didn't take time to pray. Problems just tumbled about me and heavier came each task. Why doesn't God help me, I wondered. He answered, you didn't ask. I tried to come into God's presence. I used all my keys at the lock. God gently and lovingly chided, why, child, you didn't knock. I wanted to see joy and beauty, but the day toiled on, gray and bleak. I wondered why God didn't show me. He answered me, you didn't seek. I woke up early this morning. And paused before entering the day. I had so much to accomplish that I had to take time to pray. We are too busy in our life. We are too busy in our life to not pray. Doesn't matter how busy you are, seek God, seek His help, make it a daily habit. The Lord's Prayer. Are we praying right? Are we praying for others? Or are we praying to our God? And as we go to him, are we going to him seeking his will above our own? Every head bowed, every, head bowed, every eye closed tonight.